Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's show, I've got Dr. Anne Childers. Dr. Anne Childers is a psychiatrist with a special interest in helping all ages, from children to adults, to regain physical and mental health through nutrition, sleep, and psychiatric care. She has published in textbooks and is an international speaker. Thanks, Anne, for coming on to the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi, everybody. Hi. So, Anne, I think... Uh, Let's uh, get the first question over with. Uh, I know you want to address it. People might ask if they're watching the YouTube video, why have you got a slight shake in your head? I know. I've actually had people come up to me like when I was on the low-carb cruise that were so worried about me because they had a friend or a relative with Parkinson's and they were very worried that perhaps I had contracted that. I do have a neurological condition, but it's not something that causes trouble except for a little inconvenience. It's called dystonia. It's something that I inherited. So comes so you, and goes. And, and you've had it for a long time. Out. Perhaps it'll be gone next year. I hope so. Okay, good. So yeah, if anyone's watching and you, they're worried about Dr. Anne, she's good. <laughs> yeah, good to go. Good. Brilliant. So you've been one of my low-carb, high-fat, uh, or as Dr. Gary Fetke would tell me, call it healthy fat experts, uh, for many, many years since you were at the low-carb convention in Cape Town. So as a psychiatrist, I love to maybe find out why would a psychiatrist be interested in nutrition? Well, I think uh, nutrition and sleep are basically the foundations from which every psychiatrist should work, but we're not well trained in it. So I did, a, when I uh, came down with illness about, oh, I would say maybe in the early 2000s, um, I really had to figure it out for myself. And as my health improved, so did my uh, psychiatric condition, which was attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So I was really impressed by that and thought, gee, if it works for me, why wouldn't it work for my patients? So I spent uh, almost every year after that studying fairly intensely, trying to gather as much as I could about the subject of mental health and nutrition. Okay, so yeah, from your own personal experience mm -hmm. and treat it as I guess happens so often in healthcare where something happens to you which gives you an even deep interest and you biohack yourself, you fix yourself. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's it. And um, in medical school, they told us common things happen commonly. Yeah, I remember that. So I thought, well, I can't be the only person, right? Mm hmm. So, can't be the only one. Yeah. So I'm interested. So if you said in the year 2000, then um, was this only when your ADHD symptoms first cropped up or you had always had them and you only got to really address yes. it then? I'd always had them. I was the uh, seven-year-old who was told by the teacher that she would have to sit in the corner behind the curtain. And from behind the curtain, I just kept jabbering. <laughs> I was the one that was always in trouble. <laughs> So, but I didn't know why, and I was so easily distracted. I would go from one thing to another thing to another thing, and uh, it was very hard for me to study in high school. In fact, I used to do all-nighters, or I'd get up at four in the morning, and I'd try to keep my mind on it. But if there was no motivation for me to uh, study, I wouldn't do it. Uh, it was if I had to get enough adrenaline going 
to be able to study. And basically, adrenaline is internal Ritalin. Okay. It's, it's very much like that. It, it sort of acts as a stimulant. So I get myself practically into panic mode. And I actually did all-nighters in medical school, which is, uh, I think that is the definition of insanity, really. Because you can't get everything that you should have been studying for the last three weeks in one night. Mm. It doesn't work. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I nearly uh, failed neurology, although I got a near honors on my second try. They gave me a second try. Mm. Uh, so. But that didn't seem to teach me a lesson. And it wasn't until I actually tried a stimulant that I could remember a full hour of lecture. And at that point, I was already a fellow. And I just sat in my office and cried because I felt like my education had been lost, mm. that there was so much that I didn't remember. I feel better now because since that time, I've spent – so many hours studying and trying to catch up. I, I feel good about it now, and I can concentrate better now, although I'm by no means perfect. I'm still not the most focused crayon in the box. <laughs> but I have enough, I have enough uh, technology around me to support me, and I have my niece, who's really wonderful at the front desk. So I do fairly well, but... Um, and I would say also my diet, my diet has made a tremendous difference. It's not a hundred percent, but I would say it's at least 60%. So, and, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So if we get a little bit more into your diet then and the nutrition aspect, what for you, what was the biggest change from a dietary point of view to help your own brain, your own neurology to calm down, to give you that focus in the ADHD situation? I think there are things that I quit that really helped. And one was grains and the other was uh I was I was putting maybe a quarter of a cup of powdered skim milk in my coffee every day trying to give myself what I thought was uh low fat protein. And um eventually it got to the point where I felt drugged every time I did that. I would feel so drugged that I couldn't drive. Wow. So, and, so uh, having the stimulant of the coffee, but with the skim powdered milk was actually causing further problems causing for you. trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I quit that powdered milk. I, this was at a point where I had a woman come to organize my cupboards. She would actually label every one of my cupboards so that I would know to put the dishes in the same place twice. Wow. That's how disabled I was. I was totally confused. Mm. And I stopped the, the powdered milk after one morning when I said, you're going to have to drive me to the container store to help me get something to organize because I can't drive. I feel really confused right now. I felt drugged. Mm. And uh, so I stopped that. I started doing more real fats. And then one day when I was in a meeting with other uh, healthcare providers, I realized that I wasn't keeping up with the conversation and I hadn't had that experience for a while. And it turned out that I, just before the meeting, I had eaten some little uh, yogurt peanuts that had powdered milk in them. Wow, okay. And I immediately got very confused and started asking questions that had already been answered. 
it was embarrassing because I felt like I was disrespecting the people around me by not listening to what they had to say, Mm. but I couldn't keep up cognitively. And that was a big eye opener for me. That's when I said, you know, food does make a difference. And there are probably other people out there that are eating things that don't agree with them. Mm-hmm. And they're having a hard time concentrating. And if they just got rid of those things, they'd feel better. So what I did was I, I may never know all the things that gave me trouble, but I did get rid of all of the, the powdered foods and the, and the uh, processed foods. And that made a really big difference for me. Like I said, maybe 60% difference. Mm. Yeah, so just converting, getting rid of processed and going to eat real foods. And I think your story there is is incredible too, just to say how one processed food, like a, what someone might think is healthy as yogurt-covered nuts, actually yeah. were, created massive neurological stress on your system. You know, so uh-huh. yeah, if you want to be performing on top at top level, like in your case, just have eating something you think is healthy, but it's a processed healthy is actually detrimental. Yes, and one of the chief ingredients in that was powdered milk. Mm, yeah. Okay, so I can see why you've, you've got such a keen interest in nutrition. And so how do you now um, implement this as a part of your practice? Because you are a practicing psychiatrist still. So I'd be interested to, to see, um, can a patient who might come to you um, change their diet to improve their cognition, their psychiatry? Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Um, I first do a series of tests, and um, the vast majority of the um, healthcare plans do allow me to do certain labs. And these labs include things like B12 and folate, homocysteine. Uh, this is a way of checking uh, the methylation system, part of the methylation system of the liver. Um, and also, uh, to see how well they are processing meat, fish, eggs, poultry to get their B12. Uh, so they may have stomach problems, et cetera. Um, iron, very, very important. A lot of uh, kids, especially teenagers and women of reproductive age, are iron deficient, and they look as if they have attention deficit disorder combined with depression. Um it's very hard for them to function. It's very hard for them to concentrate. And it turns out that uh, in large part, it's because they don't eat red meat. They've been cautioned against red meat. They think it's bad for them. And so now they don't have heme iron iron as a good source of iron, especially women who have heavy periods. And also athletic men. A lot of athletic men are low on iron and they don't know it. And this can also impair their concentration and make – their mood much lower than it should be. So those are among the tests that I do. I do um, also uh, vitamin D and I do several others as well. Um, So anyway, once I get these, then I have some idea of how the nutritional status is for for my, my new patients. And from there, I can basically make some recommendations about supplements to support them. The other thing I do is I ask them, well, what's a typical breakfast? What's a typical lunch? And I usually find out uh, that these people are getting flooded with refined carbohydrates, which I sometimes refer to as acellular carbohydrates, because these are the kind of carbohydrates that are not coming directly from the plant, like a potato or 
some other uh, plant source that has cell walls. It's actually so powdered that the cell walls are gone. The cell walls that surround uh, the cells of plants are absolutely gone. And so this would be things like uh, flour and sugar. These things digest extremely quickly and turn to glucose in the bloodstream. So I want to know about that uh, because if I can get them on more of a whole foods diet and less on a processed foods diet, they do better. By and large, they do better. It's it's pretty uh, it's pretty stunning how mm-hmm. well they do. And then sleep, of course, is very important. I know our our talk is going to be mostly about diet, but I also ask about their sleep habits, their sleep patterns, because that can also change their metabolism if they're not careful. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I know sleep itself is a massive topic, but I would be interested if we could just touch a little bit on that because I know I read it all the time in articles that typically in in the US where you are that a lot of people are severely sleep deprived where they try cramming only six hours of sleep so that they can work two jobs three jobs whatever it happens to be and um yeah so from a psychiatric point of view i know um it's a it's a spectrum as to what the perfect amount of sleep is but yeah how would you even address to sorting someone's sleep out so that because they have to sleep to heal their brain too they do and I won't say that I can't catch every type of sleep disorder, uh, but I am a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And although I'm not board certified in sleep medicine or, you know, or even close, I know enough to know when I need to refer someone. And it's been a really wonderful capability because I simply ask some questions like, how long do you sleep? Do you wake up a lot in the middle of the night? Do you find yourself having to urinate? If someone has to urinate in the middle of the night, chances are good they're not reaching deep sleep. And they're not getting the typical patterns that slow the kidneys down at night. So um, so that can be a clue. Has anyone heard you gasp or snort in the middle of the night? If that happens often, it could mean sleep apnea. It may be that the person is holding their breath for 30 seconds, as long as 30 seconds or more. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. And that gets the uh, body into an alarm state, usually results in an awakening, whether the person remembers or not. And uh, so that's important, too, because people who get poor sleep tend to crave junk food. They crave more carbohydrates. Uh, They also are, are more inclined to become diabetic. Um, and they have poorer mental states during the day. Their emotional states are more uh, fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have more mood swings, etc. So I can throw antidepressants and mood stabilizers at someone all day, but if their sleep is not good and if they're eating uh, junk food, I can't get them well. So I need to help them understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I definitely think I'm going to have to have an episode just all about sleep because that is so vital on how to optimize that. So you mentioned uh, mood swings there, and I did come across somewhere on the internet how you had mentioned how you had seen people who were having mood swings from sugar addiction, but they were actually being misdiagnosed as even having something as severe as bipolar disorder. 
Could you maybe just go a little bit deeper into mood swings and uh, psychiatric mm-hmm. disorders? I'd be happy to. Um, the way that the the well, first I'm going to start out by saying um, the Women's Health Initiative had a recent study where they found an association between a high glycemic index diet and depression. So they found that these postmenopausal women who had uh, higher sugars and starches in their diets were more inclined toward depression. Now, association, we all know, is not cause and effect. But if you look at the way that these sugars behave in the body, it's most revealing, in in my opinion. Um, So I'll have patients who say, well, yes, I'm up and down all in the same day. I'm doing fine, and then suddenly I'm in tears. And I'll ask questions like, well, do you ever get shaky? Do you ever get headaches? Do you ever uh, start feeling a little bit panicky? What happens during those low points? How do you feel after you eat? And sometimes I'll say, well, let's just get you a glucometer. And I want you to uh, take your blood sugars an hour after meal and two hours after a meal. And let's see what that curve looks like. For people, uh, okay, without knowing what insulin's doing, we never get the whole story. But for people for whom that's revealed with just the glucose alone, it's pretty startling. Sometimes within an, between an hour and two hours after the meal, uh, they go into hypoglycemia. And that's when they start getting shaky and panicky, and they're also more prone to feel depressed. And what they need in that moment is to get something quickly to eat. And they'll often grab the nearest thing, a bagel, which is very high in these acellular carbohydrates, so it will turn to sugar very quickly, uh, could relieve them within, let's say, 20 minutes. A piece of candy maybe even faster. So what I find more often is that these mood swings have to do with kind of a subclinical hypoglycemia, or clinical in some cases, hypoglycemia. Not as severe as what you see in a type 1 diabetic, not life-threatening, but their sugars go down. I had one woman who kept going down in the 60s over and over again. She now has a very stable blood sugar, but she's on a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, and that has made the difference for her, both in terms of her mood and in terms of her health. And she's lost weight, so uh, which was a pleasant side effect for her because she had started to gain the middle belly weight that says that her metabolism has changed. Mm-hmm. So, so these are the sorts of things that I see in practice. Kids, it's really great because the kid will, you know, the the, the uh, parents and the teachers complain of ADHD and they say this kid's not concentrating. I ask, when is it worse? Well, it's worse in the morning around ten o'clock. 10 a.m. And that's usually the snack time for most schools. So I say, well, let's try a breakfast of bacon and eggs or muffin frittatas. I love muffin frittatas because you can bake them ahead of time. You could freeze them. You can set them out to thaw. Look up muffin frittata um, on Google. Those of you who are listening, it's great. It's really great, especially for busy families. So he's had his muffin frittatas and he's sitting in class and things are better. So the teacher calls me and says, uh, could you give Johnny an extra dose of that medication he gets in the morning? And I said, what, muffin frittatas? You know, bacon and eggs? You know? 
Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Imagine that uh, you phone the mum. Look, uh, the school said uh, he's performing well. We need to up his dosage of eggs and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Oh, I actually read it. It was really funny on this uh, on this news line. It said, and health conscious parents are doing puzzling things like giving their ba- their children uh, sausage and eggs in the morning to try to sustain you know, their attention. And I'm thinking it's because it works. (laughs) (laughs) It works. That's a, that's a very good strategy. Yeah. That's an excellent tip. So, so yeah, these mood swings that, um, from children that the teachers are seeing or even adults are feeling it's Mm -hmm. coming around again, that their, their, their body is deprived of energy and they're looking for a quick fix. And then because they're going through the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows, these mood swings are seen as, something that could have been a another disorder but it's just an addiction to sugar yes it's just uh yeah and when when people get to that low point because these acellular carbohydrates act a lot like a drug kind of when you're referring to addiction Mm -hmm. um it's very much like xanax which has a very short what we call half-life it stays in the in the body and in the bloodstream for a very short period of time but it packs a punch during that time and leaves the person wanting more. And that is what these acellular carbohydrates or these refined carbohydrates, these starches and sugars do. And so these people are on these really highs, highs and low lows, and they they feel okay for a while until il- insulin takes this peak of sugar away from them and stores it as fat in the fat cells. And then so long as the insulin remains in the bloodstream, having been provoked by such a strong carbohydrate. It actually locks the fat in there. So with every peak, the person is also gaining weight. And the insulin that remains in the bloodstream is not allowing it to be released for fuel. So then they grab something more to eat, and they get another shove of insulin to save them from this high sugar peak. And then they go crashing down again, and that, again, that fuel gets locked in as fat. So they're gaining a little tiny bit of weight with each one of these uh, excursions. And it's just uh, causing all kinds of havoc with the metabolism. Is that also what people like to sometimes call hangry, where they're hungry and they're angry? (laughs) Yeah, because they're irritable or they feel like they're in despair or they feel very sad. And in those low moments, they, it's like a kindling for anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So um, it's fascinating. We can uh, Hopefully everyone can hear there's such a strong link between what someone's diet is every day and their mental state. But now mm-hmm. I'm sure you must be an outlier in the psychiatric field. There's not many psychiatrists who would take such a keen interest in getting that nutritional foundation not, uh, nutritional foundation correct to make sure that they can work with the patient's um, brain better? Well, I, d- I would say to the psychiatrists that are listening now, learn more about this because I have found that in my practice, it has been a, a great source of satisfaction, job satisfaction, because uh, it's really, it's funny, my, um, my niece worked in another clinic and uh, she came here to my clinic and she started working with me in about 2011 I think and she she pulled me aside one day and she said 
these people are getting better. And I said, yes. <laughs> and she goes, no, no, you don't understand. They're getting better. <laughs> and I said, right. <laughs> I yeah, and I, I guess that must be the case. But sometimes the stereotype might think be, oh, if you end, if you've ended up at the psychiatrist, there, yeah, you're a chronic condition, and you're, that's you for life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And actually, um, it is for life, in in my opinion. However, changing the diet and getting those moods stabilized will help reduce, and in some cases, eliminate the need for medications. And that is really satisfying. Either way is fine with me. Mm -hmm. uh, but reducing or eliminating the need for medications means that the patient is going to have fewer side effects. Yeah. And uh, will probably not kindle as much uh, mood problem. So uh, so it's a better life for them. Their quality of life goes up. Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm interested then also in have you looked at – ketones and brain health in any way so i have to some extent i would not call myself an expert on that okay but it is intriguing to me that a lot of the medications that we use that we call mood stabilizers in psychiatry are actually anti-epileptic drugs mm. very interesting yes mm -hmm. well uh keto ketosis and a ketogenic diet has been used since at least the 1920s to stabilize epileptics. Yeah, so that whole pathway there of anti-epileptic drugs and how ketones work on the same pathway. I actually um, I haven't published it yet, but I did, I've interviewed uh, a charity here in the UK about using ketones to help stabilize epileptic children, and it is it's mm -hmm. it's it's in incredible just the power that these ketone bodies this other fuel source can have for healing the neurology yes well uh university of hawaii at manoa was running a study uh in collaboration with the shriners hospital i believe of autistics putting them on ketogenic diets and there's a preliminary report that can be seen on youtube which is just a lovely little news report. And you can see that the parents are really motivated to keep it up, even though it seems like a hassle because there's a lot of preparation mm. that you would normally have to do if you were just eating a processed food diet. Mm. And uh, the uh, researchers were reporting, uh, not formally, not in, in a formal study, but on this little clip, they reported that they were seeing results within days not weeks, not months, but within days. And what they saw is that these kids become, became more outwardly focused and more in tune with their environment instead of being so internalized. And it was remarkable. And so, <laughs> and one of the parents said, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says, well, what's the worst can, that can happen? I prepared some food he didn't like and nothing <laughs> came of it mm -hmm. that's the worst that could happen yeah so i think what that points to is that this is an approach that is very low in side effects now this is i believe they are using more of a whole, whole foods approach whereas the uh, ketogenic diet of the night of of the past 
was more of a medical foods approach. And there were all kinds of side effects from that that we might not see with a whole foods approach. But again, this, these studies are in their infancy right now. Mm-hmm. But it, it just proves, again, the power of I've, – I've always tried to explain to people that the, the probably the biggest chronic chemical you're going to expose your body to every day is the food that you put in your mouth. So that is a chemical you have to ingest every single day, but you can decide what those chemicals are going to be. And exactly as these studies are showing how, you know, you you do a change and you can actually change your physiology within days to weeks and have, and Mm -hmm. see the, see the clinical results. Yes. Yeah. Is it so empowering? It it is. I would say uh, one caveat here, being a doctor, I'm very aware of this. Um, just going from what's reading now to, say, a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet could have some side effects that are unanticipated. And this is especially true for people who are, say, diabetic or have high blood pressure because these diets tend to lower blood pressure and they also tend to lower blood sugars. And if you're on something already that lowers your blood sugar, say insulin, Uh, You could uh, get a hypoglycemia that's dangerous, or you could get a low blood sugar that's dangerous. So I would encourage anyone who's considering these diets that we're talking about here that they make sure that they do it under medical supervision, particularly if they are taking medications. But that's really good news because that means that a lot of people can get off these medications. Uh, So I have a lot of hope for these uh, approaches to diet. In addition to the mental, there's the physical. And really, uh, so far in history, we've not been able to totally separate the brain from the body. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we've, we've touched on then the importance of nutrition for our brain, how people can experience massive mood swings and what appears like psychiatric disorders just because they're not actually feeding their body well. Um, Mm -hmm. so your, your particular approach then is to see is to do real food approach. And it sounds like to put a person on a sort of a tiered lower carb type diet to, to take out the refined sugars um mm. is that is that a good sort of uh idea of what you like as your sort of dietary prescription that's what i do i like to lay the groundwork though by extending the overnight fast i think extending the overnight fast especially for people who have accumulated belly weight is a good idea and the way i do this is just simply to um have a ketogenic breakfast but start Uh, introducing carbs at lunchtime. And so I'll say, okay, uh, go ahead and have a toast-free, orange juice-free, fruit-free breakfast. Have something like a couple of these uh, muffin frittatas, which I keep talking about. They are so good. I can see you're a massive fan of them. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could post one through the screen to you. (laughs) I'm such a fan. I wish I could just feed everybody one. Just give them a little sample. They're so good because you can put bacon in them. If If you're a broccoli fan, you can put broccoli. I mean, there's so many ways you can make them. You can use your creativity. Enjoy. Make a happy face on it. I'll link link to a recipe of these in the show notes for people. That would be super. (laughs) And so that kind of extends that fast overnight uh, because they're not getting the carbohydrates that are going to provoke insulin. And if they have gone into ketosis overnight, it's not going to disturb that. 
And I find that um, a lot of my patients, even if they just go that far, they tell me that they have better mental energy. So, and some of them do actually lose weight. And I say, watch your clock, your watch, and see how how long it takes uh, before you're hungry again. I don't encourage people to go like to 3 p.m. And the reason being that if they've they've not trained their bodies to be fat burners, uh, then they're going to be looking for carbs, and they may be out of fuel, and they could quote hit the wall. Close quote. So I haven't introduced maybe some fruit or something at lunch, but um, by doing that, I lay the groundwork so that if somebody wants to go keto, then all they have to do is go to their lunch and then eventually to their dinner, and then they're done pretty much. And they've done it without hitting the wall, so to speak, uh, where they've run out of fuel. Mm-hmm. So it's a gradual approach. Uh, but considering that what we're trying to do here is change a lifetime of habits in people who are already fragile – I really don't want to pressure him too much. I want him to be able to go at their own pace Mm -hmm. and also feel it. I want them to feel it. I want them to experience what it's like to feel clear headed and to feel calm and to feel like the blood sugars are under control during the day. Mm -hmm. Woman that had the hypoglycemia, she had her blood sugar went down in the sixties after her meals. She discovered this with her uh, glucometer and she ended up doing a, uh, low carb diet, and basically she became psychiatrically well and metabolically well, and that that was like fantastic. It was really fantastic. She was one of these people who could actually come off meds, and it would not be a problem. So, um, it's, yeah. So, so it sounds like is is would it be a good assumption? Well, what's the word I'm looking for? Not assumption, maybe, but that psychiatric health is tightly linked to energies how our body is managing its own energy so a body that is what that is managing its own energy very efficiently tends to have better psychiatric control too i believe that yeah i think that when people don't go from normal energy to low several times a day they're less stressed Mm. and they're not hungry. That's the other thing. When I ask them to look at their watch to see, you know, when are they hungry again? They're really not hungry and they're surprised by that. And they're not thinking about their next meal. Mm-hmm. That becomes obsessive. I remember those obsessive days for myself. I remember when all I could think about is the next meal and what can I get away with eating without getting fat. That yeah. was, you know, for women, especially for women, this is like, not that it's not bad for men, but I'm just saying women are usually more, a little more body conscious, more conscious about how they look and address. Mm-hmm. And so for us to be constantly thinking about the next meal and what it's going to do to us, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess with you, I had a, a keto nutritionist, you may know, Emily McGuire. And, oh, yes. And, and we mm-hmm. brought yes. up, I, you know, it's something I hadn't mm-hmm. even, re- even really considered because I'm a male, but that the issue of, um, yeah, the, the, with the anorexia, the bulimia, the eating disorders, yes. and that's something, yes. that kind of patient would walk into your clinic. Um, and even th- we were talking about that control factor when it comes to food. So, Yes, and control over the body. So, okay, so I have women who have lost weight and then they gain it. And then they lose it again, and then they gain it, and then they lose it again, and then they're a little better able to keep it off. 
But here's the deal. Here's the thing that they got psychiatrically that was the the gift, the gift of being able to do this, even though it sounds like yo-yoing. They now know where the gas is and where the brakes are for waking. They know, and they know they have control over it. They know exactly what did it, and they don't have to guess about it anymore. And that is a gift. In fact, I have to say, I'm really looking forward to the Apple Watch with the continuous glucose monitor on it. There already is one through Dexcom, but it's invasive. Tim Cook just took one that is non-invasive for a test drive. I understand he wore it for three weeks. He's the CEO of Apple, I understand. And uh, he says it changed the way he eats. And I think seeing in real time, just seeing right here in real time, what is happening to your body and how your body is processing sugars, because we really are different from one another in this respect overall, um, will help us understand better understand what we can eat and what we can't. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to blow this wide open. And I think people are going to feel better and we'll start knowing how to step on the gas and how to apply the brakes and we will feel more in control. I think it'll be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. My understanding is he's not going to make it a medical device. Uh, my understanding is not going to look for that kind of approval. Yeah. Uh, I, instead, he's going to make it uh, available for the general public. Yeah. I think uh, I always see that the legal term is like um, educational or entertainment only. So yes. <laughs> something like that. Um, but I think sure. I, I agree because that's again comes back to that term of biohacking and knowing your own physiology and actually being able to go right so i just ate something did my body like that or not like that and i can actually my new cool trendy apple watch Uh or device actually teaches me that so it's and because it's an apple uh, product it it, that's the message is going to go much wider much faster than uh, other ways of doing it so i think it is a good Oh, yeah. I think the Silicon Valley is going to lead the way. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to figure it out. I remember uh, walking into a uh, Palo Alto startup and seeing all these young people eating like goldfish crackers. And and I thought, I think this is going to change soon. They're going to develop the technology that's going to tell them this is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're going to change the way they eat. And sure enough. Uh, it's happening, and I'm so excited. Yeah, that's yeah. I've mm-hmm. I've, I've got to interview uh, recently another Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneur. It's something I want to talk maybe a little bit about nootropics, and it is incredible. I can see it that 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 group of people out there are hungry to feel good and to perform well, and so they're trying to find any little nook and cranny to be able to do that. And fasting mm-hmm. and a ketogenic diet or a lower carb mm-hmm. diet is definitely. They're finding that, like, yeah, we, you know, in Silicon Valley, we're performing better when we do do those things. Yes, that's absolutely true. And and a lot of these people in these startups really are ru- kind of running uh, intellectual marathons daily. Yeah, they've got so, massive pressure on them. They do, and so to be able to do this and do it uh, more handily than they've been able to in the past is great. One caveat I would say about the Apple Watch, while I have great hope for it. It does not tell us what insulin's doing. And I don't know if you heard of uh, Joseph Kraft. 
Joseph Kraft. He uh, basically did uh, oral glucose tolerance test with insulin, where he starts out with a beginning insulin and a beginning uh, glucose, and then you take your 75 grams of glucose from Lucozade or whatever the, the sweet drink is that you take in the lab, and then they keep checking your blood sugar and your insulin every hour. And his were five-hour tests, so they were pretty exhaustive. And he generated some graphs that were very interesting. And one of the things he found is that in some people, the rise in glucose and the rise in uh, insulin happen simultaneously. But in some people, like the woman I told you about who is getting hypoglycemic, her, her insulin was actually overshooting her glucose. And you can't see that. On, on a glucometer, and you can't see that on an Apple Watch. Uh, and so you may have, a, you may look at your watch and say, oh, I have a normal glucose. But unless you know how much insulin you produce to keep that normal glucose, then you don't know if you really have uh, uh, metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. And I think that that can be misleading. That can be misleading. Mm. But but I think having something like that is better than not having something like that. Yes. And getting the information is much better than not getting the, getting the information. Uh, but I would recommend that most people who suspect that they have insulin resistance get a three-hour oral glucose tolerance test. If you want to write this down, it's OGTT in America. We call it OGTT with insulin and I think uh, that generating that graph will get that generating that graph will give you the information that you need to know about your metabolism. Mm -hmm. That's empowering. I'll, again, I'll link to that so people have awareness. So I'd like to get now a little bit deeper into uh, with the time that we got left about optimizing our brains, if you wouldn't mind. Um, <laughs> I mentioned the word earlier, nootropics. Uh, are you familiar with that? And uh, do you have any sort of opinion from a psychiatric point of view? Um, I have just a, a glancing uh, familiarity with nootropics. So as far as taking something out of a bottle to help your brain, mm -hmm. trust me, I have done that. I have grabbed this and grabbed that. Does this work? Does that work? And it's always an N equals one experiment. And I would say probably the, the one that I found helped me the most was, I would say, a couple of things. Uh, one would be fish oil. And then uh, the other was uh, making sure that I had a methylated B12. That seemed to help me. Uh, but I think I was low on B12. I may have been getting analog B12, which shows up on a test. Uh, the, the active B12 that human beings do well with and the analogs that are sort of the synthetic uh, Bs that uh, we see a lot in pharmaceuticals still show up as B12 on a blood, blood test. So you can be B12, active B12 low and still have what looks like a normal B12 or even a high B12. Uh, so what I did was, what I do in my practice is I get a homocysteine because homocysteine doesn't lie and it reflects active B12, active B6, and folate. So that way I can tell if somebody's low. So I would say B12, but you have to make sure it's an active form. Or just make sure that you 
get plenty of uh, meat, fish, eggs, and poultry. So that's one thing I think a lot of people are low on and they may not know it. Um, well, sorry, just to jump in there because so many people um, take B12 injections to improve their energy yes, levels. So they do. I think that's where people can relate here with B12. And they may go to their GP and say, oh, I feel fatigued. And then mm-hmm. they go, oh, you're low in B12. And they give them a jab in the bum every three months. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and that that seems to work. Uh, in in my practice, when I've talked to uh, practitioners about giving my patients injections, my experience is it's hard to get. And we don't give the injections here. People who take Prilosec or some of these proton pump inhibitors uh, that are meant to keep them from having um, acid reflux or heartburn, mm-hmm. they need to take B12. People who take metformin, they need to take B12, and I usually recommend um, methylated B12. Okay. I think most people do pretty well with that. Um, so B12 is, I guess you could call it a nootropic. Yeah, it uh, is. Fish, fish oil really helped me. I mean, I couldn't. I could probably type 15 words a minute with on a good day with the wind behind me until I started taking fish oil. And about three months later, even the kids I was treating were going, Dr. Childers, your typing is so much better. I mean, it must have been horrible. <laughs> it must have been hot and peck, single finger. <laughs> so, I can imagine so, these, these tech-savvy kids watching you type very slowly and thinking, oh, can I type for you maybe? <laughs> I know, right? These kids are like in residential psychiatric treatment, but they were brilliant. They were so much fun. But so anyway, how, how much fish yeah. oil were you taking then to get that sort of clinical benefit? Well, I wasn't taking a lot. I was just taking, I had been, I had read 2000 milligrams. I've since read from the American Psychiatric Association in 2006. They, they put out a, a paper saying that they thought uh, it would be wise to take enough fish oil such that DHA plus EPA equals 1,000 milligrams. So you just look at the back of the bottle and you add up the EPA and DHA and you try to get somewhere between 900 to 1,100 milligrams and I think you're, you're golden at that point. And that's about what I take right now. And I, I find it works very well. My typing is very, very nice. Thank you. Yeah, and I think that's such a nice side effect to have. Well, side effect, a positive effect to go. A lot of people are, are told take fish oils because it's good for your brain and for yes. your eyes. And mm-hmm. um, yes. yeah, and you, I mean, you saw it in your typing speed. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, eye-hand coordination became very good yeah. uh, in ways that it hadn't been when I was a teenager. That's so. fantastic. So what other brain biohacking tips could you share? Any any other any other tips that you have for the listeners? Well, I think it's interesting uh to me that uh coconut oil may be able to at least the MCT the uh medium chain triglyceride type oil from the coconut uh is able to promote ketones in the brain without being on a ketogenic diet. And I thought that Mary Newport, uh, who's an MD who had, whose husband had Alzheimer's, uh, gave us a nice description of how well that helped him. Uh, she, however, didn't give the MCT oil. She just gave the coconut oil, and she gave it two tablespoons a day, and it made a tremendous difference. I think that in uh, non-APOE4 uh, dementia, it seems to work better, and I can't explain why. 
I did see one study where they thought a ketogenic diet helped people who had, say, APOE3, but who had some kind of dementia, but actually may have uh, interfered with uh, verbal ability and verbal memory in people with APOE4. So I'm cautious uh, to recommend that as a broad stroke for all kinds of Alzheimer's. Uh, But I am intrigued by it. And I do take my uh, coconut oil, hoping that it will extend my shelf life (laughs) (laughs) as a a psychiatrist. Uh So, uh, and I I can't say that that's doing it, but so far so good. I'm still practicing. So fantastic. So yeah, so it sounds like something simple so far is methylated form of uh, B12 and mm-hmm. um, a good source of of fat to try raise your ketones potentially to help your brain and yes. and um, the fish fish oil too to help help your brain. Those are some good yep. things, and of course, sleep is one of the bigger bigger ones just to optimize your sleep. Which we'll, maybe we'll have to get you back on again to talk about sleep at some stage. <laughs> I would love that. Fantastic. So, Dr. <laughs> Childers, um, how would people be able to get in contact with you or follow you more? Because I know you even uh, gave a talk recently on that uh, Jimmy Moore's low-carb cruise, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, I yeah. don't know if Jimmy releases those videos uh, at all, all those interviews that people could maybe get to find out more about your talks. I think I think he does. Yeah, you can keep uh, checking on his low carb cruise line. By the way, uh, he's already announced for 2018 that we're going to the tropics. So, welcome aboard, everybody! <laughs> Come on in. Let's all do this, right? <laughs> and and just think of all the vitamin D you can get. Mm. So, I mean, really, it'll be a very healthy cruise and and a lot of fun, a lot of a lot of uh, good camaraderie. And karaoke. Anybody who's into karaoke, please absolutely come join us. We need help. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a plug for the low carb cruise in May of 2000. And it sounds like you're a definite go. I'm a definite. Oh yeah, I'm yeah. definitely um, a participant. And uh, yeah, I did give a talk there. They can people can reach me at Ann Childers MD on tri- Twitter. Uh, Ann Childers MD, and then uh, I am on Facebook. Uh, and you can also reach us at uh, Life Balance N as a Nancy W, lifebalancenw.com. That is our uh, official site. And uh, I look forward to being in communication. I really enjoy uh, engagement and questions, and uh, I welcome people's comments. Mm-hmm. And again, for anyone listening, I'm going to be linking to all of these links on the episode page for this um this episode so the links will all be there for, to to click and start following you and make contact if they wish so and Sweet. again thank you so much for coming on I've, i felt you've really highlighted some very important points for psychiatric care and nutrition and i just want to say thank you so much for doing that thank you so much for inviting me gary no i problem. hope you have a great day you too